Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. How are you, Darbs? It's been a long day. It has been a long day, but it's the end of the week, so that's good. (laughs) The weekend's right around the corner. Yeah. Well, welcome, everyone, to another mini-episode, and actually, we are inviting you to um, a three-part series on CODIS. That'll be our next three episodes, so this is part one, Um, and this series is going to focus on the relationship between laws and forensics and how this relationship really directly impacted three local homicides and one out-of-state case. All of these cases really relied heavily on DNA testing results from crime scene evidence. And as we have discussed previously, um, before the invention of our current DNA typing techniques, biological testing was really pretty limited to bo- body fluid typing, ABO blood grouping, and enzymatic activity. And when DNA typing came on board, It was really the first time that crime scene evidence was individualized enough that a specific person could be linked to crime scene through biological evidence. This was a very powerful tool, and naturally, with great power comes Comes great great responsibility. responsibility. For those of you like Spider-Man, there it is. And currently in the field of forensic DNA typing and forensic DNA databasing, it's regulated by the FBI's Quality Assurance Program. Um, This program really began in about 1988 when a group of 30 scientists got together and formed the Technical Working Group for DNA Analysis Methods. They created the standards for 1988, 1991, and 1995. And then in 1994, the U.S. government enacted what's known as the DNA Identification Act. And this act really created uh, the CODA system, or the Combined DNA Index System. And it required a couple of things to happen. Um, The first was that they wanted a DNA advisory board created, and then that advisory board would create the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Quality Assurance Standards. And these standards would regulate DNA forensic typing labs and databasing labs. So once that was created, the DNA Advisory Board was disbanded, and now they're really called the Scientific Working Group for DNA Analysis Methods. And this group serves to put forth guidelines for the QAS program. And these guidelines come out, Darby, what do you say, like every five years or so, kind of whenever new techniques pop up. Yeah, especially when there's a big movement Mm -hmm. scene and there's um, a really big push to have that technology used in the field. I feel like then they're... Then they update. And so these guidelines are like best practices, um, how a lab should move forward with bringing on new technologies, stuff of that nature. And so when they bring out their guidelines, it is reviewed by the FBI's QAS, and they can choose to adopt some of those guidelines or not adopt them. If they're adopted, they do become standards and it's those standards that really regulate everything um, for DNA typing labs and databasing labs and these standards include everything from the security of our facilities uh, training our personnel and really even evidence storage 
and everything in between. Yeah, everything that we do. Um, and so our lab brought on updated DNA testing techniques and the CODIS system uh, sometime in the late 1990s. And when this happened, a review was conducted of unsolved homicides and they were really looking to see if any of these homicides had evidence that maybe these new technologies would aid in the cold case investigation. And during that search for unsolved homicides, one case that was selected was the 1977 homicide of Lisa Marie Bonham. Lisa Marie was a six-year-old little girl from Martinez, California. She was here in Reno visiting family where she'd been playing in Idlewild Park with her older brother. Um, back in the day, Idlewild Park used to have carnival rides and trains and a bunch of other things, apparently. I don't think you probably ever knew this. I did not. Yeah. I did not until you um, told me. Yeah, I had been on those rides. It's kind of like, at least when I was young, um, it was reminiscent of like the Disneyland teacups. They were apples, though, when I was a little kid. They have a train. The train is still there, and it still goes around Idlewild. But they had like games you could play, different types of rides, that sort of thing. So the kids were out enjoying Idlewild Park and um, needed some more money. So Lisa ran back home to get a dollar from her mom. Um, and upon getting the money, she needed to run just three blocks back to meet up with her brother at the park. But she never returned. And immediately, Lisa's family began searching everywhere for her in the park, on the way to the park. Um, and when she was not showing up, they called authorities. And the morning following Lisa's disappearance, a couple had been searching for aluminum cans and they discovered some little girl's clothing in a trash can at a rest area just outside Reno. And this clothing was identified to be Lisa's clothing um, by her parents. The next real big break in this case came about two months later when hikers found a human jawbone when they were hiking in Dog Valley. And investigators came out and started searching the area, and they were able to locate the rest of the human remains that also belonged with the jawbone, and those were determined to be Lisa's. This was a really big case at the time for our community, and investigators followed up on numerous leads. They interviewed tons of potential suspects, but unfortunately, by the early 1980s, this case had become a cold case. And cases usually don't go completely cold um, because as new technologies advance, evidence is re-examined and tests are conducted. And this is what was done with the clothing that was identified as Lisa's. So over the years, semen stains had been identified on her shirt and a sock. But as you know, and we've talked about, these older methods were more useful in eliminating someone as being a suspect rather than actually matching an individual to an item. So as DNA technology advanced, the stains were re-examined and a profile was developed and entered into CODIS with no match. And once again, the case was cold and stayed cold for a few years. And then in 1998, the system identified what's known as a cold hit in Lisa's case. So a DNA profile from a convicted offender matched the profile from her clothing. And when we talk about hits or cold hits, what it means is that a complete unknown association was found, and this lead would never really be obtained without the help of the CODIS system. Um, also, and kind of exciting for our laboratory, was that this was our very first CODIS hit at our lab, and it was not just our first hit, but it was a really big hit in a really old homicide. The DNA profile obtained from that evidence hit to a sample that had been collected voluntarily from Stephen Smith, 
a sex offender who had been previously convicted of the abduction and sexual molestation of two girls from Sparks. He had been sentenced to two terms of life in prison with the possibility of parole. He served seven years for those crimes and was released on parole one year before Lisa's disappearance. When they started looking into uh, Stephen Smith, they did find that at the time of Lisa's disappearance, Smith actually had been living in Reno and he was working as a poker dealer. Uh, Smith, over the years, had been identified as a registered sex offender. Um, you know, sometimes there are different task forces that are created. And at the time, uh, in the early 90s, they had one created that was looking at older unsolved homicides or sexual assaults of children. And so Smith had been on that list as a registered sex offender, but he was never even considered a suspect in Lisa's case until the cold hit happened. This hit was a really big deal for our lab, not just because it was the first hit in the CODA system for us, but it occurred 21 years after her murder. And so it was also a very old case. And specifically at the time, the case was the oldest case ever solved by DNA for the Reno Police Department. And it was possibly the oldest and coldest hit in the United States at the time it happened. Smith ultimately pled guilty at trial and confessed to Lisa's murder. And he even offered details of the ordeal. And in an effort to obtain Smith's cooperation in the investigation of other child abduction and murder cases, he did not receive the death penalty in this case. So CODIS is a very powerful tool that lends aid to criminal investigations. And uh, we looked up some stats for you guys. So Darby, how about you tell our listeners how many offender profiles are currently in uh, the National Index, DNA Index System? So as of April of this year, there are over 14 million offender profiles more than 4 million arrestee profiles, and just over 1 million forensic profiles. And really, ultimately, the success of CODIS is measured by how many crimes that it helps solve. That's kind of like the main metric that the CODIS system used to know whether or not it's doing its job and it's being successful. So um, as of this year, Darby, how many um, hits and investigations did we have? So CODIS has produced over 562,412 hits, assisting in more than 549,516 investigations. And for the state of Nevada, we just in Nevada, we have had over 6,000 investigations aided. Over the next two episodes, we will explore three other cases that were greatly impacted by CODIS, and we will also explain the important role that you all play in shaping the laws that ultimately impact forensics and the potential leads that can be gained from DNA databases. We hope you all enjoy our three-part series on CODIS. Stay tuned for a trailer for part two. Join us next week as we discuss one of the most well-known cases from our area, the 2008 abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Reno local Brianna Dennison. This case rocked our community as investigators linked Brianna's case to two other assaults and announced that a serial rapist and then murderer was somewhere in our community. Brianna's case highlights the use of YSTR testing and greatly impacted Nevada's CODIS laws as it brought on the ability to collect DNA samples from those arrested for felony crimes in our state. Known as Brianna's Law, Nevada's arrestee laws have allowed for the collection of arrestee samples since 2014.